Good morning, Living Church. How are you? You doing well? Oh, good, 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 good. You're ready for NFL playoffs this afternoon, aren't you? Yeah. We got something a lot more important to do this morning, and that's getting God's Word. You ready? If you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts 5 is going to be our text this morning. While you're turning there, I do want to just express my appreciation for uh, just how encouraging, uh, gracious that you have been to me and my family. Uh, Just last week, even out in the back, we were greeting people and getting to know you and uh, just so many words of encouragement to me. And I was already excited for today before last week was even over and uh, just feel so blessed to be here and the privilege to be able to uh, teach God's Word to you and to to lead you in that. And uh, we talked last week about the fact that's kind of driving a a stake in the ground that my responsibility as the lead pastor is to be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to week in and week out faithfully proclaim the Word of God to you. And I commit to you to do that faithfully by God's grace. But you know, this is not just a calling that I have. This is a calling that all of us are to be a part of, to live a life, to be a church that's unashamed of the gospel. And listen, Brian, I believe that when we're this kind of church, when we're the kind of church, as we're going to see in Acts 5, that is absolutely unashamed about Jesus, that God will do great and mighty things through us. I believe he has, and I believe he's going to continue to do that. Do you believe that? I mean, do you believe sitting here today that the future could be far beyond what you could even imagine right now? Not because of any of our strength, but because what God can do through us when we're faithful to Him. Well, that's what we're going to see in Acts chapter 5. I hope that it's going to be a message to encourage you and that you're going to leave today just skipping for Jesus out of the church. You're going to be so fired up for what it means to be a part of the church Acts chapter 5, we're going to look kind of at the whole chapter, but I'm just going to read starting at verse 27, and I'm going to ask if you're able to stand to please do so for the reading of God's Word. Uh, This is our visual reminder that this Word comes to us by the very authority of God. Luke writes here under the inspiration of the Spirit, beginning at verse 27, says that when he, when he had brought them, he set them before the council, that is, the apostles. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, when they heard this, that is the council, they were enraged. They wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up. And he gave orders to put the men aside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care of what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. 
After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. But he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, with this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is God's Word. Would you pray with me? Father, I do ask you now that you come and do what only you can do. Open our eyes to see. Open our hearts to receive your Word. God, may our vision of who you are and our vision of what you can do and our vision of what we're a part of be increased as a result of your word today. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, by the time I saw it, there was not anything I could do to stop it. Several years ago, uh, I was invited to go visit one of my friends who lived on the East Coast, and my friend had just kind of got involved in surfing. How many of you have ever been surfing? Okay, a few of you. Well, I told you last week, I grew up in Tennessee, and so... My experience of surfing was about like this kid right here. That's about all the kind of surfing I had done. But he invited me to go, and I thought it would be fun, and so I said, sure. And we went. Now, it just so happened to be right after a major storm system had gone through, and so the waves were real choppy. They were a lot bigger than they normally are. It was pretty uh, hazardous conditions. In fact, it was red flag. You know what red flag means? don't go in the water, dummy, and uh, nevertheless, I did, and I took my surfboard, first time surfing, and I go in, and, and I'm paddling and paddling and paddling as hard as I can. My, my arms are tired. I'm getting exhausted. I'm trying to get out past the waves so that I can then ride them back in. Uh, my, my friend is well on out there, and he's just waiting for me to get there, and so I keep, keep paddling, and, and all of a sudden, I hear my friend yell two words, Look out! Those are not two words you want to hear when you're surfing. And I looked over my shoulder and I saw what was like a wall of water. This, this wave was coming down on me and there was absolutely nothing I could do to stop it. Um, I grabbed that surfboard and I held on literally for dear life and that wave came crashing down on me. It threw me off the surfboard. It threw me underneath the water. Like it felt like I did a hundred flips. I didn't know which way was up, which way was down. My heart was racing. Like I literally thought, this is it. I'm going to see Jesus. The surfboard, as some of you will know, has a little rope that's attached to it and you wrap it around your ankle. And praise God, I followed that rule because the surfboard came up and it pulled me up with it. 
And I grabbed that surfboard, scared to death, and I paddled as hard as I could back to the beach where I made manly sandcastles uh, the rest of the day. <laughs> I didn't put a toe back in the water at all. I was, I was terrified. Now, I don't know if you've ever been a part of something that was coming at you so strong that there was absolutely nothing you could do to stop it. For all of us, it's the aging process. You do everything you can to slow that down, but you can't. For some of you, it's been the death of a loved one. You did everything to stop it, but it was unstoppable. It may have been the ending of a relationship. It may be final exams. It may be a deadline at work. But most of us have been in that situation where something's coming upon us, and it doesn't matter how hard we try. It doesn't matter how hard we push back. We can't stop it. Now that's the kind of imagery I want you to have here in Acts chapter 5 because that's precisely what's happening here. Although it's not with a wave of water, it's not with an aging face, it's with the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we see here in Acts 5 is the wave of the church, a wave of the gospel that is coming in full force. And even though there's people doing everything they can to try to stop it and shut it down, they can't do it. The gospel is ultimately triumphant over all of the resistance that's given to it. Notice, first of all here, there's an internal challenge that the church is facing. Look with me back at the beginning of chapter 5, like in verse 5. It says, here's a man named Ananias, and it, the Bible says that he falls down and he breathes his last. So he get, dies. Here's a guy who dies in the presence of the apostles. Verse 6, it says that young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Verse 7, after about three hours, not knowing what had happened, his wife comes in. Peter says to his wife, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door. And they will carry you out. And then notice what happens in verse 10. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. So here you have a husband and a wife who die. Like what in the world is going on? That's kind of crazy. You know, there's just some things in the Bible that you're like, wow, that's, that's wild to think about. Now what's the context? At the end of Acts chapter 4, the church is doing some pretty crazy things. They're facing all types of obstacles politically, physically, and financially. So what the church is doing at the end of Acts 4 is they're living and giving sacrificially. In fact, Luke gives us the example of a man named Barnabas. What he does is he has a piece of land. He promises it to the Lord and to the work of the gospel, sells it, gets money from the land, but what he does is he keeps some for himself. Him and, him and his, or actually, Barnabas doesn't. He gives it all as he promised. But then Luke contrasts what he does with this husband and wife. What they do, same thing. They promised land, sold it, got money, but unlike Barnabas, who gave it all, they keep it for themselves. And Peter calls them on it and says, you've tested the Lord. This is someone who's made a promise within the community of faith, and yet they're holding back, and God actually judges them for it. In fact, and I'm not going to go down this trail he takes their life. And there's a lot that I could say there about the holiness of God, about the reality of sin, but we're not going to address that this morning. 
Um, can you imagine if God still worked like that today? Wouldn't that be a little scary? But even still, there's a judgment there. And um, so what happens is uh, they're judged here, and the point that I want you to see is not the fact that they died, but even within the church, there were those that were trying to stand against the advancement of the gospel and the advancement of the church. You know, John Stott said that the church life is not all romance and righteousness. If you've been around or involved in the church very long, you know that there are challenges within the walls. There are challenges within the people of God that we face. There are people who gossip. There are people who sow seeds of discord. Uh, there are people who fight with one another. That in the church there are internal issues, and that was the case even in the early church. But it wasn't just an internal issue. Notice they also faced external challenges. Uh, look at verse 17 in Acts chapter 5. It says that the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, they were filled with jealousy. And then notice what they do in verse 18. It says they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. So get, so get this imagery here. You have Christians, and within the ranks there are people trying to be a hindrance. And not only that, on the outside, there are leaders, religious leaders, who are trying to stop them. In fact, if you've read through the book of Acts, you'll know that this is actually the second time the apostles have been put into prison. And they're told specifically that they're not to do something. Look at verse 27. When the council brings the apostles before them, the high priest questions them, and here's what he says. We strictly charge you not to teach in the name that is the name of Jesus. And yet, what were you doing? You were filling Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So the council calls them in. They've put them in prison. They're trying to figure out, what are we going to do with these guys? They call them before the council, and they say, okay, here's the deal. Seriously, stop telling people about Jesus. They're kind of like that angry parent. How many of you parents have ever said, don't make me have to, what, tell you again? Like I've told you for the last time, stop doing this. And that's what that's what the, these, these leaders have told the apostles. And so, how do the apostles respond? Do they say, I'm so sorry, it'll never happen again? No, what do they do? Look at verse 29. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand and as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we're witnesses to these things. And so the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey. Now, now, now follow this. They call them in and say, stop telling people about Jesus. And how did the apostles respond? Can I tell you about Jesus? Stop witnessing. Would you mind if I witnessed to you? They do the very thing the council leaders told them not to do. Why is it? Look right here, because they're unashamed. No one is going to keep them from living and speaking about the gospel of Jesus Christ because their life has been changed. So now the leaders of the council are furious. In fact, we read earlier, what do they want to do with them? They want to kill them. 
Now, you know you have to be pretty mad when you literally want someone to die because you're so angry. But that's precisely what this council wants. They want them dead. But a wise leader of the council, his name's Gamaliel, he stands up and he says, now listen, we've seen movements come and movements go. We've seen leaders rise and leaders fall. Trust me, this is no different. If this is purely about a man, give it time, it will fizzle out. And so the council decided instead of killing them, they would simply beat them. And that's precisely what they did. The point here is not only were there internal issues, there were external issues. And external opposition to the gospel, external opposition to the church is not the exception, it's the expectation. When you live radical, when you live fired up and passionate for Jesus and his word, expect opposition. But what you don't find here is the apostles saying, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad beatings happen to people who are serving God? I'm doing everything I can to serve Jesus. Why am I dealing with this suffering? No, they understand that this is what it means to take up your cross and follow Christ. Internal issues within the church. External issues outside the church. So what happens? Do they pack it in? Do they give up? Do they quit? Does the church shut down? Does the gospel all of a sudden fade like Gamaliel said? Oh, this movement will come, but it's going to go. Is that what happens? Oh, no. Look at verse 14, and this is so much fun. Look at what Luke records for us. This is a big verse. Star it, underline it, highlight it. And more than ever... Believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And see, in other words, you have the internal threat that happens, but the church unites. You have external things that happen like prison doors get shut and God just sends an angel to open it right back up. You have a council that wants to kill them, and yet you have Gamaliel, who's not even a Christian. He's not even a Christian, and yet he's used of God to save the apostles' life. And during all this, multitudes are coming to faith. Why is that? Because you cannot stop the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one ever has. Berean, look at me, no one ever will. Governments can't do it. Black eyes and swollen faces can't do it. Administrations can't do it. And legislations can't do that. Even Satan himself cannot stop the church when the church is fired up about Jesus and fired up about the gospel. Now, I hope that's encouraging to you, but I want to do something this morning to take you from the book of Acts all the way to today, to, to just show you a picture. And you need to put your seatbelt on. Like, metaphorically speaking, put your seatbelt. We're about to fly through some of the greatest news that you're ever going to hear. It's greater than the NFL playoffs today, I promise you. I know you may be excited about that, but this stuff fires me up. With all the resistance in Acts... What does Luke tell us? Acts chapter 2, 3,000 are added. Acts chapter 4, 5,000 are added. Acts chapter 5, multitudes are added. Acts chapter 6, 
Many Jews come to faith. Acts chapter 13, Gentiles now come to the faith. You've got the gospel is advancing even in the midst of all these hindrances. But what happens after that? Now follow me. From about 100 A.D. to about mid-300s, you have ten major seasons of persecution. Serious persecution. Like persecution that likely no one in this room has ever faced. You have uh, some that walk away from the faith, they're called the lapsed. You have others who die for the faith, they're called martyrs. You have some that were literally physically tortured because of their faith called the confessors. Individuals like Ignatius who was drugged from city to city to city because he believed in Jesus Christ and he was unashamed. You have people like Polycarp, there's an interesting name for you, Polycarp, who was thrown to the lions because of his belief in Jesus. And yet, the church continued to move. During this time also, the church faces serious heresy. You've got things like Gnosticism that said Jesus wasn't even a man. You've got things like Arianism that said Jesus isn't God. And yet, during all of this uh, time of resistance, the Bible is canonized. You've got early church creeds like the Apostles' Creeds. You've got people like Athanasius and Justin the Martyr and Tertullian, people who said we're not ashamed of the gospel. And the church of God, even with resistance, continues on. Mid-300s to 500. Constantine makes Christianity the, the religion for everybody. But now you have a new challenge facing the church. Now it's very, very easy to be a Christian because everybody is. What you have during that time is counterfeit Christianity because what Constantine would do is put a sword to your neck and say, you can either be baptized or else. I'll take baptism. It's easy to get converts that way, but the heart's never changed and you have a very easy, surface, soft Christianity that's not gospel Christianity. And yet, even through that, you've got people like Augustine that continue to preserve the truth of the gospel, and the church advances on. 500 all the way to, say, 1300, you have the Middle Ages. Now the church is facing a new challenge it's never faced up until that point to this degree. You have immorality and injustice taking place within the church. There's a practice known as simony. It's where church leaders would buy and sell their position. It's like, hey, you want to be lead pastor? Give me some money, all right? And that's what they would do. And during this time, because of that, there broke off a movement known as the monastic movement about 910 A.D. And St. Francis of Assisi, you may have heard of others like that, and they preserved the truth of the gospel and the church continues on. 1300 to say mid-1500s. Guess what happens? The church is politically corrupt. Why? Because the church and state have united. They're one. You've got politics in the church. And so you have things like the selling of indulgences. What's that? You ever heard the phrase, when a coin and a copper bowl rings, another soul from purgatory springs? It's the idea that if you want Aunt Betty to get to heaven a little faster, give me some money. Salvation is not by faith. It's your relationship with the church. You have all this going on, a political corruption you have the Bible that's not even allowed to be in the common person's language 
But what happens? The church is going to be defeated. The gospel is going to shut down. Absolutely not. you got people like Wycliffe in England and Huss in Bohemia and Luther in Germany and Calvin in France, and they put their life on the line to make sure that we have Bibles that we can read in our language, and they stand up without compromise that salvation is by faith alone and not by the church, and they stand for the gospel, and the church isn't shut down. The church... The true church continues on to the 16th century. Queen Mary, you may have heard of her as Bloody Mary, not the drink. Bloody Mary, am I allowed to say that? I just did. (laughs) Bloody Mary, her idea, that was her nickname, her idea of a good time was torturing Christians by burning them at the stake, and that's what she did. That's why they called her Bloody Mary, because she killed so many Christians. And you would think that that persecution would shut down the advancement of the gospel in the church, but it didn't. Because during that time, you've got preaching like Whitfield and Wesley, and you have men and women of the Puritans who stand up for the gospel. In fact, that's how the gospel gets right here to American soil. And then the challenges here start, 1800s, about 1650 to 1800, what you have here in America known as the Enlightenment. Now all of a sudden the church is facing a challenge of human reason and modern science and and, and rationalism and atheism, and some of you are even dealing with that still today. And you've got names like Darwin and Kant. And you would think that rationalism is somehow going to overtake Christianity. But oh no, what you have take place right here in America with Jonathan Edwards is the Great Awakening. And after that, the Second Great Awakening and the modern missions movement because the gospel continues to go forward and the church continues to advance. 1800s to today. Globally, there are challenges all over the place. In China, they said the Cultural Revolution would shut Christianity down. It was one million approximate Christians before the Cultural Revolution. When it was over, it was estimated to be somewhere between 30 to 50 million Christians. Now, by the 1990s, there's well over 70 million and growing Christians and churches in China. In Africa, you have, by the end of the last century, 4% were Christian. Berean, now over 40%. You have places like the Soviet Union that after 70 years of communistic oppression, you would think the church would be shut down. But today, over 40% believers. Korea, they said of Korea, quote, it's impossible to penetrate. Well, guess what? Now in Korea, there's over 30% Christians and over 4,000 churches. Bangladesh, Indonesia, Iran, East Africa, There have been more Christians in the last 10 years there than 10 centuries before. Do you want to know why? I'll give you one reason. Muhammad is dead and Jesus is alive. Because as, yeah, you can clap for that. Brian, I'm telling you all those things not because you can pass your history test now. Because I want you to see you're a part of something big that when the church gets fired up, when the church is serious about the gospel, when the church doesn't care what the world says about us, God does great and mighty things through the church because he's a great and mighty God. And I pray for us in the days to come. I I, I come here and we are starting a new season in the life of Berean. 
And I believe God has done great things. And I believe God will do great things. But it's going to be more than me just being passionate up here, unashamed of the gospel. It's going to have to permeate from this place all the way to the back where we do not care what they say of us or what they will do to us. We will not be quiet about Jesus. And here's the amazing thing. As I tell you that whole story from Acts all the way today, we get to be a part of it. Right now, right here at Berean Baptist Church in Burnsville, Minnesota, we're a part of that story. Granted, a little footnote with three-point font, you know, you can maybe barely read it in the whole scheme of things, but we're a part of this great, amazing story in your life, teenagers. Catch this vision of something bigger than your life and see that you're a part of a mission, of a story of God. And even when you feel like stay-at-home moms, you're not winning. Even when you feel like church, that, that with all the programs you try, it's, not, it's just not advancing. Even when you feel discouraged and you think it's going nowhere, just like I'm sure they thought in Acts chapter 5, when they're standing before a council with their life on the line, you feel like you're not winning. But behind the scenes, God is doing things your eyes can't see. And right now, this morning, in a Walmart break room, in a church nursery with diapers being changed, in a Bible study somewhere down this hallway where somebody's teaching, the church is moving forward and the gospel's being advanced. And the question for every one of us this morning is, are you a part of that? Will you let your life be surrendered to God to be used mightily for His purposes? And you say, well, what does all this mean for me? And we'll close with this. Like, Athanasius who? What? What? Huh? i got to go to school this week. I've got to go to work this week. What in the world does this have to do with me? Notice how the chapter ends, and we'll end with this. Verse 42. Verse 42 says, and they had a really large conference. No. Verse 42 says, they, they added 200 programs to the church. No. They, they brought in a really gifted speaker that persuaded people well. No, it says that every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. in the little areas like your kitchen table and your lunchroom cafe as you faithfully go about planting seeds of the gospel and living a life that is giving and living sacrificially for the sake of the gospel that's how the church is advanced daily obedience daily faithfulness parents don't you dare stop planting seeds in the hearts of your children. Teenagers, don't let anybody intimidate you. Keep faithfully and with obedience living for the Lord Jesus Christ because one day you may hear two words. Look out! 
and you look over your shoulder and it's not a wave that's coming upon you or your family or your school or this community. It's the power of God. And I pray that's happening right now. Because when that day comes, I'm telling you, there's not a thing you'll be able to do to stop it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray first that we're encouraged. That we've seen from your word, that we've seen throughout history how the church is ultimately victorious. But what we see in Acts 5 is individuals who are not ashamed to live for Jesus. They are, as we so often say it around here, the living church out there. In schools, in homes, in workplaces, all over our community. So encourage us this morning. Others in this room, let's be real honest, they're not a part of this story because they've never repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus. God, I pray that as we sing a song here, I pray your spirit would take what we've heard and, and plant it in our hearts. There are things we need to do. There are things we need to surrender. There are things we need to commit to. So by your grace, would you lead us to that point right now? In Jesus' name, amen.